I'm Satya Doyle Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves. Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark? If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus, known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon, in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. So we ended last week with a with a Q&A and as we do but one of the questions that came up you know is around kind of what is right action in this time and I want to just say that I think I inadvertently expressed a dichotomy that I don't want to express which is there are times in life this is kind of a dogma in the Jungian world that is something I try to counter a lot which is that there are kind of developmental phases for inner action and developmental phases for external action the idea is that the first half of life is for kind of extroverted external action and we see that certainly in in the age of a lot of protesters right now and a lot of kind of cultural transformation um, and that the second half of life is for inner work I think that has really was kind of a suggestion and it's long been a suggestion in culture and religion, but I think it's become a dogma within the Jungian world in a really problematic way. And I just, because I kind of heard a little thing that I said last week ringing in my ears, I don't want to perpetuate the notion that certain periods of life exist for extroverted action and certain periods of life exist for introverted action. I think it becomes way too polarized. And if we're too much in the extroverted, we burn out. And if we're too much in the introverted, we can, we can disengage. You know, it's not always. But just finding the way, especially in these times, for each of us to be fluidly engaged as much as possible with inner transformation and pulling the projections back from the external world whether positive or negative, understanding that we're co-creating the world all the time in the, ex- in the external world with our inner lives. Um, and also understanding as Jung really explores in, this, in the Red Book that if we only do this work internally, we're also not participating in the physical universe. Carol and I were talking about this a lot. Carol, you want to say anything about this before we begin with the Anchorite and DS2? I really think that that's what these two chapters are about is the wholeness that comes from quote in here and out there and um, I'm very struck by the Buddhist concept of mutual arising and that it's easy and reductive to talk about an inner state and an outer state you know the, the a western sense of duality but that I think what Jung is arriving at and what we'll see as we read into it and discuss it is that it's like an infinity loop. It's like a Mobius strip. And, and from an astrological point of view, time itself, and I think you're going to talk about time a little bit, time itself brings us in and out of these dynamics, not so much in terms of chronology of age, but in terms of um, how our experience brings us to choice points how we bring ourselves wholeheartedly to those choice points 
And so it's, it's not an either or, it's a both and. I love that, that idea. We, we discovered this in the Campbell Reader. I'm, I'm sure I'm saying this wrong. Samutpada, S-A-M-U-T-P-A-D-A, dependent origination or mutual arising. And I think that the desert in the garden that we're going to encounter, the masculine and feminine, the dark and light, the inner outer, I think that's what we're about. Absolutely. So we're going to start because, again, I think if, if you really are reading along already, um, mm-hmm. many of you have found the conversation between these two chapters and that Jung originally called the Anchorite chapter day one or DS1. And, the, and the, the second chapter we have is the second day. So we're talking about a vision and experience in which Jung showed up during the day to this location. He falls asleep in this location, this desert space. He wakes up the next day and has this experience. And then in the afternoon has a conversation with Ammonius, the anchorite. So it's really an entire journey in this one desert location and the experience of the desert coming to life. And again, this, this relationship between those things. So we're going to do a lot of reading aloud because, again, just particularly feeling the times, it feels important for us just to sink into the story together today. So we'll start on page 241. And I'm actually going to begin with the footnote here, which is footnote 44. This didn't make it into the draft of the Red Book, what was published and what Jung created in the full final draft. But I'm going to read most of this footnote because you can feel what kind of what he's following to lead him into this vision in this space. From December 30th, 1913. All kinds of things lead me far away from my scientific endeavor, which I thought I had subscribed to firmly. I wanted to serve humanity through it, and now, my soul, you lead me to these new things. Yes, it is the in-between world, the pathless, the manifold dazzling. I forgot that I had reached a new world, which had been alien to me previously. I see neither way nor path. What I believed about the soul has to become true here, namely that she knows her own way better and that no intention can prescribe her a better one. I feel that a large chunk of science has been broken off. I suppose it must be like this for the sake of the soul and her life. I find the thought that this must occur only for me agonizing, only for me, right? That this is not relevant to others. I find the thought that this must occur only for me agonizing and that perhaps no one will gain insight from my work. But my soul demands this achievement. I should be able to do this just for myself without hope for the sake of God. This is truly a hard way. And I'm just going to pause right there and, and speak to this idea that, again, I think I've been exploring this a lot. We've been exploring this in another class recently, this, the Campbell's idea of follow your bliss. And to me, this all starts to weave together here that we so often don't know why our soul is demanding something from us. And I can tell you as a therapist, I know we've all had this experience, but when when I hear in people the, the true calling of their soul, it is so profoundly specific. It blows my mind every time. And it always seems absurd. I mean, to every person, but there's something so juicy and extraordinary about what that calling is. And every single person thinks it's selfish, it's absurd, it's nonsensical, it's useless. But we can see 
with for you know again these are people who i really have been deeply influenced by but for campbell it was go into the forest during the great depression find a little cabin and read mythology for five years this is during the great depression what from that journey i mean what a an incredibly specific and perhaps unnecessary endeavor to go read mythology for five years you know but look what came of it in terms of of so much of this scholarship that opens up and for jung this deep dive, he thinks he's going past science and it's useless to everyone. But notice from all of this is where Jung's work came. So feeling that and all, because I think there's a lot of these opening up, this greening, and we're going to talk about the greening, you know, what's starting to open up for folks in this time, this kind of quarantine, social disruption, everything that's unfolding. We also need the glimmers, the greening of what brings us all to life and what will bring our world back to life. Okay, so I'm going to start then here with the beginning of the Anchorite. On the following night, I found myself on new paths. Hot, dry air flowed through me, and I saw the desert, yellow sand all around, heaped up in waves. Carol, here's another word I don't know how to pronounce. Can you pronounce that word for me? A terrible, irascible sun. Thank you. What she said. A sky as blue as tarnished steel, the air shimmering above the earth. On my right side, a deeply cut valley with a dry riverbed some languid grass and dusty brambles. In the sand, I see the tracks of naked feet that lead up from the rocky valley to the plateau. I follow them along a high dune. Where it falls off, the tracks move off to the other side. They appear to be fresh and old, half-worn away footprints run alongside. I pursue them attentively Again, they follow the slope of the dune. Now they flow into another set of footprints, but it is the same set that I have already followed, the one ascending from the valley. Henceforth, I follow the footprints downward in astonishment. I soon reach the hot red rocks corroded by the wind. On the stone, the footprints are lost, but I see where the rock falls off in layers and I climb down. The air glows and the rock burns my souls. Now I have reached the bottom. There are the tracks again. They lead along the winding of the valley a short distance. Suddenly, I stand before a small hut covered in reeds and made of mud bricks. A rickety wooden plank forms the door where a cross has been painted in red. I open it quietly. A haggard man covered in a white linen mantle is sitting on a mat with his back leaning against the wall. Across his knees lies a book in yellow parchment with beautiful black handwriting, a Greek gospel without doubt. I am with an anchorite of the Libyan desert. Am I disturbing you, father? You do not disturb me, but do not call me father. I am a man like you. What is your desire? So I'm just going to pause there to say that you can already, at the, at the moment here that Jung realizes where he is, this is slightly different, I think, and I'm curious if I'm missing, I'm sort of misremembering, but it's different in that he really is having a kind of a time travel experience. So in different visions that he has, he's, he's encountering figures that he's familiar with in certain respects or figures he's not familiar with. Um, he's doing this journey, but here he really has the experience of entering the third century and encountering somebody who's sitting there in this different time period. And what starts to unfold, I'll read a little more here and just listen into these questions of 
how slow time is or how fast time starts to pass or how much you can lose yourself in the experience of just being with nature, time travel. There's this, you know, as Jung speaks about the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths, I think we can really feel that kind of lived experience of moving through different experiences of time throughout, throughout this, these two chapters. So Jung says to Ammonius, the anchorite, he's later named as Ammonius, he says, I come without desire. I have come to this place in the desert by chance and found tracks in the sand up there that led me in a circle to you. You found the tracks of my daily walks at daybreak and sunset. Excuse me if I interrupt your devotion. It is a rare opportunity for me to be with you. I have never before seen an anchorite. There are several others, Ammonius says, the anchorite. There are several others whom you can see further down in this valley. Some have huts like me. Others live in the graves that the ancients have hollowed out in these rocks. I live uppermost in the valley because it is most solitary and quiet here and because here I am closest to the peace of the desert. Jung asks, have you already been here long? Ammonius, I have lived here for perhaps 10 years, but really I can no longer remember exactly how long it is. It could also be a few more years. Time passes so quickly. Time passes quickly? How is that possible? Your life must be frightfully monotonous. Time certainly passes quickly for me, much too quickly even. It seems you are a pagan. Me, Jung says? No, not exactly. I was raised in the Christian faith. Ammonius says, well then, how can you ask whether time drags on for me? You must know what preoccupies a man who is grieving. Only idlers grow bored. Carol, I'm going to pause there. What are you feeling or thinking over, over there? Well, I'm a little bit back there with your comment about time, and I, I want to read something from a quote that I keep here from the author Hilary Mantel, you know, who has written the brilliant three-book series on Thomas Cromwell and, and England. She says, this isn't just about a medium. It's about how to induce the necessary frame of mind to let the past enact itself. And this is Jung's process, and it is time travel. I think about the wonderful book by Mary Watkins about imaginal dialogues, where she says, in the Western culture, the only people who are allowed to listen to their voices are artists and crazy people. <laughs> and so I think about this, the inner dialogue that's here, but also not just the inner dialogue, but the not, I wouldn't even call it the descent, if we think of mutual arising, that the linear time is not the point here, that it's the, the, the idea of the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths is, how do you access the timeless by leaving your current state around time, and that that's what that's what we have going on here, including how he'll revisit, how, the, how he'll revisit the red one and and right. the anchorite. It's interesting to me that he uses the word anchorite. I mean, strictly speaking, an anchorite is someone who is walled away. And a hermit is, uh, is someone who is living um, beyond the, you know, outside of the village, we could say, which is certainly the case here. But clearly, this word means something for Jung in terms of the isolation. Mm -hmm. No, I was really curious about that historical distinction, too. So I'm glad you yeah. spoke to that. And I'm curious about maybe Anne knows something more of the translation, but it seems that that was the original use of it. So, oh, yeah. 
So we'll come back to, again, to this question of time a little bit in the next chapter as, um, as Ammonius is, is trying to also understand the future in what he's reading. He's trying to draw out the way of what is to come, which is, of course, also the kind of core of the Red Book. So Jung is then seeing in Ammonius in this anchorite that he's trying to stare into logos. He's trying to stare into these words to understand what is to come. And that's also a bit of what Jung is doing. So that comes into the next chapter. But Carol, do you want to read this beautiful passage for us? 248. Yes. Well, just as a preliminary, the anchorite and Jung get into a dialogue about the word Mm-hmm. And that that idea of where do where do we what what Jung calls it? I'm searching here. You are reading this book, and I'm searching for unambiguous language. And the anchorite says, "You won't find it in this book. I haven't found it in this book." And then there begins this back and forth about John the Evangelist and John God, that John said God was the Word, and the anchorite says, "Guard against being a slave to words." Here's the gospel. Read from that passage where it says, in him was the life. And now they're talking about light and dark and a a very sophisticated, um, very kind of mental dialogue that ends with Jung going, going deeply into the night and into the desert. And in the middle of this, on page 248, I'm going to read for this, because it's what he encounters from this dusty, dry, abstract, language-driven conversation with the capital F father, the capital M man, the capital W word, and the idea of logos, comes this. He says uh, at the top of the page of 248, the life of the solitary would be cold were it not for the immense sun which makes the air and rocks glow. And we'll come, it's interesting to come back to that in DS2 because of the emergence of the sun and the reemergence of light from uh, the depths of night. The sun and its eternal splendor replace for the solitary his own life warmth. His heart longs for the sun. He wanders to the lands of the sun. Then he says he needs little food since the sun and its glow nourish him. Consequently, the solitary loves the desert above all since it is a mother to him, giving him food and invigorating warmth at regular hours. And then in the middle of this, in the middle of this hot desert, in the desert, the solitary is relieved of care and therefore turns his whole life to the sprouting garden of his soul which can flourish only under a hot sun. In his garden, the delicious red fruit grows that bears swelling sweetness under a tight skin. You think that the solitary is poor. You do not see that he strolls under laden fruit trees and that his hand touches grain a hundredfold. Under dark leaves, the overfull reddish blossoms swell toward him from abundant buds, and the fruit almost bursts with thronging juices. Fragrant resins drip from his trees, and under his feet, thrusting seed breaks open. If the sun sinks onto the plain of the sea like an exhausted bird, the solitary envelops himself and holds his breath. He does not move, and is pure expectancy until the miracle of the renewal of light rises in the east. And when you look at the images that are the main images of the the beginning of these chapters, this is the desert 
And Carol, do you and, want to describe again a little bit of what, what we're seeing? So in the Red Book, um, very much like, like other illustrated holy books, Jung is doing initial caps for each of the chapters. And what we're looking at here is the drawing that he did for the beginning of the chapter on the Anchorite. But what he comes to in terms of the capital that he uses for the next chapter is very much what it is that sort of presaged here, which is the greening of the desert. So we're, we're in this journey of going into the desert, the sun and the word and logos and light that in the depths of it, in the center of it, in the sort of timeless place of it is this green garden. And that this is the initial capital for the next stage, which is when he's now he has been sleeping and now he's going to wake up and come back to the sun and pray. So I, I hadn't really looked at the images before, but here you can see here's the desert from the previous chapter out of which is growing the returning sun knowledge and the greening of the tree of the desert. So I was, I was very struck by that. Carol, I love that. I'm so delighted that you pulled that out. I think <clears throat> I've really been loving the fact we've been moving, you know, more slowly through the red book in this than I ever have before. And it's been so special for so many reasons. I mean, so much Anne said, we were just talking a little bit before the rest of you join and said something that really felt exactly my experience that these two chapters in particular, so much more has come out of them in reading them slowly and a few times over than I've ever experienced before. And Anne had felt the same. Um, but even just seeing those cap, those images, those small images that get overlooked because the Red Book has so many massive images. But we are on week 12, and I believe next week 13, it's the same. We have yet to encounter a full page image. So when I think so often we think of Jung's Red Book as being about the images, and I actually saw, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the one-star reviews on the Red Book reader are hilarious because people are complaining. The Red Book's all about the images. This book doesn't have any images. You lied. You sold me nothing, you know, all this stuff. But, but it's because, you know, it's really dense material. So here we are, week 13, and we still haven't encountered a full-page image in carefully exploring this material. But I love, Carol, you drawing out those two small images because there's so much in them that we miss when we're just seeing the, the larger pieces. Well, and you know, he goes on about, about the garden. You know, his eye rests on the garden and his ears listen to the source. And his hand touches velvet leaves and fruit and his breath draws in sweet perfumes from blossom-rich trees. And then he goes on and he says, you yourself want to be that solitary who strolls with the sun in his garden, his gaze resting on pendant flowers and his hand brushing a hundredfold of grain and his breath drinking the perfume from a thousand roses. So you can feel the, the movement away from only the word because, you know, later in this chapter, he, he says the God of words is cold and dead and shines from afar like the moon mysteriously and inaccessibly. So this this encounter with the anchorite that leads him into this incredibly rich, luscious, fruit-producing place um, gives him perspective about the word that he doesn't that that he doesn't have before he enters the garden. Mm -hmm. That's why I was so struck by the difference in the images. You know, something's blossoming in him. Yeah, it's really stark. We'll finish this section, but I want to just say again that Anne, where I can't see her at the moment, but that she. Yeah. Um, 
just wanted to say a couple of words about that image, which is so fascinating. The scarab beetle, of course, was an Egyptian mythology in the Book of the Dead. What brings the sun back up after it's gone through its nightly travels under the world? And if you look at the image down on the bottom, about a quarter of the page, the background is the color of the desert or the earth. And out of that is coming the scarab pushing a little tiny sun. Yeah. And... And the wings are up on that upper image, and on the scarab that goes around is headed the other direction, where he's now delivering the sun back to the earth, as it were. But the yeah. other thing that's so interesting about that image is that the it's I, the, the first letter on that is I, but that the I is a upside down tree with roots both up in the sky and in the ground which is, of course, what Jung is saying about himself, but he's depicted it, the eye, as a tree with roots up and down. Yeah. Thank you. The inverted yeah. tree. It's a powerful... Well, let's... Okay, we're going to finish because Anne speaks to the scarab beetle, and, and that comes in in a moment. So I'm going to read the end of this chapter, and then we'll, we'll encounter what happens when the desert starts to green, okay? Because we're kind of still in just the dusty desert here. This is the end on 251. The god of words is cold and dead and shines from afar like the moon, mysteriously and inaccessibly. Let the word return to its creator, to man, and thus the word will be heightened in man. Man should be light, limits, measure. May he be your fruit for which you longingly reach. The darkness does not comprehend the word, but rather man. Indeed, it seizes him since he himself is a piece of, of the darkness. Not from the word down to man, but from the word up to man. That is what the darkness comprehends. The darkness is your mother. She behooves reverence, since the mother is dangerous. She has power over you, since she gave birth to you. Honor the darkness as the light, and you will illumine your darkness. If you comprehend the darkness, it seizes you. It comes over you like the night with black shadows and countless shimmering stars. Silence and peace come over you if you begin to comprehend the darkness. Only he who does not comprehend the darkness fears the night. Through comprehending the dark, the nocturnal, the abysmal in you, you become utterly simple and you prepare to sleep through the millennia like everyone else, and you sleep down into the womb of the millennia, and your walls resound with ancient temple chants, since the simple is what always was. Peace and blue night spread over you while you dream in the grave of the millennia. Carol, you want to take us in to the next, what happens as he sleeps? Yeah. Well, I, I'll take us in, but the, he says, I awaken and the day reddens the east. And I just want to briefly show you the horoscope. This is Jung's natal horoscope in the middle. This is the night of the anchorite, December 30th, 1913. And this is January 1st, 1914, the night of DS2. And while there are, you know, Jung is deepening from an astrological point of view, Jung's deepening into the 12th house of going into the depths is a part of this process of walking into this place. This place lives in all of us. It's alive in all of us. 
in um, different degrees at different times. And when we were talking about the last two chapters, the encounter with one of the lowly, the moon and the role of the moon and the importance of the moon was a part of the moon sitting right on Jung's ascendant. Now we have the sun entering the 12th house and the sun is going to be here for the next month of all of these journeys. And the sun is going to be joined by Mercury and by Venus on these journeys. So there's beginning to be an intensification, a lighting, a, a solar power that's beginning to illuminate and light up the 12th house um, in, this, in this time period that of, of course is bringing this inner illumination out to Jung's, literally to his body. He's literally embodying this and certainly from this opposition into his heart. So I'm very struck by how, the image, how his imagery reflects in a very minute way the current day and the current energy of the day that he's in. So, so I'll begin with that. Good. I, I would just like to echo something that Anne said. He says, I awaken the day reddens the east. And, and remember, he has said in the previous chapter, what do you do all day? Right. You know? <laughs> like, like, how can this possibly hold anything of interest to you? Then he encounters the inner garden. And now it's morning. Right. I awaken the day reddens the east. A night, a wonderful night in the distant depths of time lies behind me. In what faraway space was I? What did I dream? Then he talks about the horses, Helios, the sun, the thousand black serpents, and then the fresh morning wind arises. Yellow sand trickles in fine veins down the rocks. The redness expands across the sky. I see the first rays shoot up to the firmament. Solemn, calm, and solitude on all sides. A large lizard lies on a stone and awaits the sun. I stand as if spellbound and laboriously remember everything from yesterday. And then he goes on to talk about what shall I do this whole long morning? And then over there, a small dark beetle is crawling along, pushing a ball in front of it, a scarab. You dear little animal, are you still toiling away in order to live your beautiful myth? How seriously and undiscouraged it works. If only you had a notion that you are performing an old myth, you would probably renounce your fantasies as we men have also given up play acting at mythology. And so I, I just want to reiterate Anne's talking about the beetle one of the journeys that I took as a part of, of the scarab bringing up the day took me into looking at Egyptian mythology that had to do with the sun being carried in the boat through the gates of night. And so here we have the sun's boat being carried and encountering there's a god for every hour and that the scarab is the the last through the last gate and bringing bringing things back to life the sun bringing things back to life so uh, that idea and any of us you know who who live close to nature we know how busy nature is you know the uh, the crows come and start their business the same time every morning the spiders in the corner in my bathroom are busy in the same time every morning the birds 
you know and so this in that in this imagination itself that recognition of something that's pulsing and alive and being itself and that's what's bringing life up is uh, i i'm so struck by that yeah and for me it's really the beginning of jung's shift we're going to hear him really speaking later in the red book about living one's animal self living one's animal so I want to read this little paragraph too, because I think this is really where that, that notion begins to enter for Jung, that there's this kind of question throughout these chapters in this one of who's the pagan, you know, is he a pagan is, you know, is the red one like what's going on, there's all this dichotomy between Christianity and paganism, you know, but Jung starts to open this whole thing up. And again, we're going to see this a lot later in the book of the importance of living one's animal self, which is this kind of surrender to one's existence in all of its forms without preconceived notions, without preconceived dogmas, without preconceived religious adherence or political or anything, which again is kind of this following one's bliss. It's letting one's soul and one body lead even when every religious or political or any kind of notion would suggest don't go there. So he's just loving the world right now in this space, in the desert. He's just, he's beginning to just love the world. And he says, dear beetle, where have you gone? I can no longer see you. Oh, you're already over there with your mythical ball. These little animals stick to things quite unlike us. No doubt, no change of mind, no hesitation. Is this because they live their myth? And then he speaks to this scarab beetle. This is, this is on 254, middle page of 254. Then he's having this kind of religious dialogue. You know, he's starting to fall in love with the world in a religious way. You know, he says, dear scarab, my father, I honor, I honor you. Blessed be your work in eternity. Amen. What nonsense am I talking? I'm worshiping an animal. That must be because of the desert. It seems absolutely to demand prayers. So again, Jung's wrestling. Yesterday, he was, he was worried that the day and time would pass so slowly. He couldn't believe that Ammonius had been in the desert for 10 years. It, it was just overwhelming to him. 10 years in this dusty, empty place and with one book, you know, and Ammonius says, oh, come on, you know, there's so much here and this book is so alive for me. So then Jung sleeps and then he awakes and begins to experience the beauty and the vibrancy of the world and is amazed. He says, uh, 2.55, the beginning. He says, am I dreaming or am I awake? And that's another notion. This, this comes up a lot through this book, right? It's hot. The sun already stands high. How the hours pass. Truly, the morning is nearly over and how astonishing it has been. Is it the sun or is it these living stones or is it the desert that makes my head buzz? I go up the valley and before long, I reach the hut of the anchorite. He is sitting on his mat, lost in deep reflection. My father, I am here, Ammonius. How have you spent your morning? Jung, I was surprised when you said yesterday that time passes quickly for you. I don't question you anymore and this will no longer surprise me. I've learned a lot but only enough to make you an even greater riddle than you were before. Why, all the things that you must experience in the desert, you wonderful man. Even the stones are bound to speak to you. And Ammonius says, I'm happy that you have learned to understand something of the life of the anchorite. That will make our difficult task easier. I don't want to intrude on your mysteries, but I feel that you have come from a strange world that has nothing to do with me. 
So what unfolds here, there's again, there's so much in each of these chapters, right? But I'm going to just from that place, take us to the bottom of 258. And Jung, this is Ammonius. He says, um, Ammonius looks at Jung. He looks at me suddenly as if doubtful and suspicious. But he continues, I love the desert. Do you understand this yellow sun glowing desert? Here you can see the countenance of the sun every day. You are alone. You can see glorious Helios. No, that is pagan. What's wrong with me? I'm confused. You are Satan. I recognize you. Give away, adversary. He jumps up incensed and wants to lunge at me, but I am far away in the 20th century. So this is such an important moment because, again, we're having this experience where Jung encountered the red one, thinking the red one was his devil. Here, Ammonius encounters Jung and thinks that Jung is his devil. And this interplay, this is going to show up again in a couple chapters, where the inner life, you know, what's influencing what? What is the devil of what? What is the shadow of whom? This dialogue unfolding. And here, Jung makes a point about how the anchorites were concerned with the devil showing up, but it was their own doubt that they were wrestling with, their own struggle with their own doubt. And so Jung is experiencing this all around of the interplay between these figures and, and the psychological unfolding of, of this spiritual experience. So there's so much more. Carol, we're still, you know, we have all this, this left around the interplay with the world, um, this uh, section on 260. And then there was a Rilke poem that I encountered really synchronistically this morning right before that um, I wondered if Anne could read. But do you want to speak to anything there before we dive into that co-arising? Well, I think that that's really how this is sort of rounding itself off in this two-part reflection of his. Uh, The paragraph on 260, if you watch closely, you will see what you have never seen before, namely that things live your life and that they live off you. The river bears your life to the valley. One stone falls upon another with your force. Plants and animals also grow through you, and they are the cause of your death. A leaf dancing in the wind dances with you. The irrational animal guesses your thought and represents you. The whole earth sucks its life from you, and everything reflects you again. This passage, this leads straight to the Rilke poem and Anne. I was so struck by this because it reminds me very much of the work of um, David Abram in his book, The Spell of the Sensuous, where he where he speaks about beginning to understand that living, that, that the shamans and healers and magicians of this particular culture, Indonesian culture that he's studying, that how they conceive of healing is staying in relationship with all animate life. And that illness comes from separation and, and misuse a failure of direction from from the depths and and of of animate life to contemporary living how he casts it is that the idea that the village is taking more from the wind and the mountain and the land and the ant and it's giving back in terms of gratitude or praise or 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 and a co-equal arising this idea of mutual arising and that where healing comes from is the reestablishment of that equilibrium and i think all of that is really implicit in this paragraph beautiful yeah 
And and I'll say, I mean, I think we're not going to have time to read it, but those last paragraphs, 261, are just really powerful in that. Um, so I, I just want to say, because it felt so synchronistic, I've had this book, just a small book called Meditations, Thomas More, um, the Jungian analyst and former Jesuit monk. And I've just had this on my desk for a while now and opened it up and, of course, opened up to this page that so speaks to this. So I'm just going to read... Um, on this, this is just a little bit, and then I want to tap it to Anne. He says, monks are called to the contemplative life. The word means to cut out a space for divination. The monk creates an inner temple, a space in mind, imagination, and heart where he can observe the signs of divine providence. The work of the spiritual life includes the building of these inner temples and the creation of temenos, a space set apart for sacred use. As this work progresses, everything acquires its temenos. As Emerson said, everything becomes a sign. Contemplation, the primary work of the monk, achieves the necessary emptiness in everything, every moment, and every event. These empty spaces, simply marked out as sacred, invite the soul to participate and provide places for its dwelling. Mm. So then on the next page, there's this poem by Rilke that feels like such a beautiful conversation with this section of Jung's. And, um, and Anne, our, our gorgeous, brilliant Anne, is a, um, is a Rilke scholar and so many other things that always impress me. And I thought she might read this, but then Anne, you also have so many of your own contributions from this section that have been speaking to you, and we'd love for you to share whatever moves you to share. Well, I think before reading the Rilke poem, that I would love, when I first read The Anchorite, and this is what I prepared for last week, I was immediately struck by how abstract and philosophical their conversation was. I've done that a thousand times in Germany. It's very, very dry. And, you know, you have the not knower and the knowing one and so on and so on. And what came to me immediately was the memory of a description in a book called by Paul Brunton, who went to India at about Jung's that, that same time as a Western male seeker. And he crossed India and he met many holy men. And then he came into the presence of the great, one of the two great saints of the 20th century, Ramana Maharshi. The other would, of course, be uh, Ramakrishna. But at any rate, that's what came to me when I was reading this chapter, because Ramana lived 17 years in silence and was a true anchorite, as, as you've been hearing on the way of the hermit. By the way, the word anchorite is the same in German. When he uses the word solitary, he's translating a word einsam, which really means it's got a lot of the lonely one in it as well. Mm -hmm. But there's nothing rich in the translation. So I went back and reread the passage from Paul Bruton, and I would love to read that out loud before the Rilke, because I think you get a genuine feeling for the depth of the kind of stillness that we often talk about abstractly. Even Thomas More, all of us, maybe not Abrams, but at any rate. So here, here's the quote from Paul Brunton. Pinpoint silence prevails throughout the long hall. The sage remains perfectly still, motionless, quite undisturbed at our arrival. I listen to the rhythmic purring of a fan, while I look full into the eyes of the seated figure 
in the hope of catching his notice. They are dark brown, medium-sized, and wide open. If he is aware of my presence, he betrays no hint, gives no sign. His body is supernaturally quiet, as steady as a statue. Not once does he catch my gaze, for his eyes continue to look into remote space, and infinitely remote it seems. The minutes creep by with unutterable slowness, yet no one in the hall seems to stir. Finally, Brunton comes to the point where he says, this is after another whole hour has passed. There is something in this man which holds my attention as steel filings are held by a magnet. I cannot turn my gaze away from him. My initial bewilderment, my perplexity at being totally ignored, slowly fade away as this strange fascination begins to grip me more firmly. But it is not until the second hour of the uncommon scene that I become aware of a silent, resistless change which is taking place within my mind. One by one, the questions, the words, the logos, the questions, which I have prepared in the train with such meticulous accuracy, drop away. Think of all the questions that Jung was wanting to ask the anchorite. All those questions drop away, for it does not seem to matter whether they are asked or not. And it does not seem to matter whether I solve the problems which have hitherto troubled me. I know only that a steady river of quietness seems to be flowing near me that a great peace is penetrating the inner reaches of my being and that my thought-tortured brain is beginning to arrive at some rest. And so when I wrote you, my point was that the silence and the radiance of one who has been 10 years or more in solitude, a true and anchorite in the deepest sense of the word, radiates a love that is deeper than any knowing, than any logos, and thus embodies the overwhelming, compassionate immediacy of that. And mm -hmm. I think it's very important to have a sense of the depth of the anchorite before we discuss, even before I read the Rilke poem. I would like to say, I found somewhere a note, that Jung was on his way to see Ramana in India when he had the dream that said, go back to the Occident. That's where you are. That's what you have to worry about is the West. He says, in the words of Carl Jung, this is Jung speaking, Sri Ramana is a true son of the Indian earth. He is genuine. In addition to that, something quite phenomenal. In India, he is the whitest spot. Well, that's a questionable word to, word to use in today's world, so I'll drop that. But anyway, what we find in the life of this Distillion, what we find in the life and teachings of Sri Ramana is the purest of India with its breath of world-liberated and liberating humanity. It is a chant of millenniums. So it's really interesting that he was, not only was he going in India to see Ramana, I mean, I just read what he thought of him. And then he has that dream and turns around and goes back home. And I've always pondered that. 
And there are days when I understand it and days when I think, I wish you'd gone. I wish you'd experienced. Raman is not one who does guru disciple, is not one that tries to keep you in the East, simply says, who am I? But he didn't go. And there are days when I understand it's right. He had to go back to the West. I'll end with a poem, with your poem, yeah, and Anne, I just want to, you know, both Carol and I just appreciating your your contribution here to this, to this just drawing our attention to the quiet essence of that anchorite life, it, if it manifests. And I think, you know, you said as well, Jung's navigating his experience of this anchorite through these chapters and will continue to do in the coming chapters of Ammonius. But to just be brought to that quiet stillness of, of being, the good reminder. Yeah, he doesn't always capture, I don't think, because he captures philosophically, but not at depth, the essence of the experience, if you see what I mean. Too yeah. often it's a bit heady, is what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. Rilke, what birds plunge through is not the intimate space in which you see all forms intensified. Out in the open, you would be denied yourself would disappear into that fastness. Space reaches from us and construes the world. To know a tree in its true element, throw inner space around it, from that pure abundance in you, surround it with restraint. It has no limits, not till it is held in your renouncing is it truly there. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Anne. This constant conversation between the inner and the outer and what's what. Thank you so much. We are going to open it up to questions and just see what's bubbling up for a few people here before we end. Okay, folks. Randy, hi. Did you you have a question for us? Uh, Yes, this is a wonderful... a fantastic session. I got a quick comment. So I'm working on a project of relating uh, the orphan. I'm reading a book about Jung's uh, orphan stone. And later in life, he associated the anchorite with the orphan and the orphan stone, the lonely one. What's interesting about this red book passage, if we look at the, um, the path of the anchorite of removing themselves from a world, what they're removing themselves is the parented world. So they're removing themselves from the patriarchy, from uh, the, the family. And so that's part of, and once you remove yourself, you get into a different place where you see the world differently. And what's interesting when Jung did that, and he comes out and he calls, and he meets the scarab and calls it his father. And then he meets the stone and calls it his mother. So it suggests one of the process of the orphaning process is the anchorite goes away from the world, rediscovers the other world, and in doing so, discovers his other parents. So he yeah. discovers the other father, and then discovers the other mother, and that continues. Then you can discover your other siblings, your mm-hmm. other families, your other communities, your other worlds, your other politics, and that begins the expansive path of how we, this is the process of being able to know the other, and the path from that goes into your other parents, other families, other communities, and that's the, that's the whole point. And I think that's why Jung talks about being alone isn't enough and why you have to come back out into the world or in the hero's journey. It's the work after that's difficult. That's the path. 
by discovering your other parents, it expands into other families, other communities. It's so powerful, Randy. It's so true. Thank you. Very exciting. Yeah. You know, it's the older, older, older idea that the wind in the mountain is your uncle and the wind is your auntie and the bear is your brother. And that Hillman actually talks about this really exquisitely and, and tersely in his book, The Soul's Code, where he calls it the environmental fallacy, the chapter on it called environmental fallacy, in which he says in these, in these he doesn't call it the patriarchal years, but in the focusing down that had its apotheosis in the industrial revolution and the outflow of it, mother and father get to be everything. And that now you, you don't have, as we did, as we used to have in our bones, this broad, broad, broad base of connection and belonging and resonance. There's only this. And just to, just to underscore your point, Randy, about saying, saying goodbye to that way of thinking about the family to, to join a, different, a, a more ex- inclusive family. Like a lot of Helma off Clint's points where you've got everything coming down in a triangle to the single anchorite point and then expanding out again from that point into the other. And it shows both are equally infinite. Beautiful. Thank you. I also just think of it just very briefly developmentally that we've lost in our culture. I mean, again, this is kind of core of what I think about um, of how to become mature adults, how to become mature humans. And that so much of that is withdrawing the projection from mother and father and experiencing them outside of those two figures or if there were never those figures to be able to find them within ourselves or within the world so randy your work on the orphan of really deeply exploring this is always illuminating for me and my understanding of of how a a person matures how a human matures well thank you it's really fun and you know working with you guys has been a great help to i couldn't have done it without you guys and it's really fun to participate in it so. Thanks. We're glad you're here. Mutual um, arising. Mutual arising. Steve, hi. Um, hi there. I, I was really struck by that the image, um, which I didn't realize was the opening of, of DS2 with the, with the tree. Because there's, there's so much imagery going on there beyond the scarab. One of the things you pointed out was um, the, this kind of confusion as to the roots and the top of the tree. There, there's there's so much like alchemical and cabalistic imagery going on in here yeah. a, as well, particularly this idea of the, you know, like the, the, the tree of life. I, I um, really sort of had to pull this thing off, off, off my shelf where they depict the, the tree of life as um, this tree with its roots in the air and the leaves in the ground. What's that um, from, Steve? What did, what's the so, uh, this, this is this is just this is just an anthology of oh, yeah, um, the alchemy and mysticism. Is that the Tashin uh, book? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, but this, this, yeah, but you have the image of the solar disc here. You have the the, the two pillars. You have the the serpent uh, going up and down. So uh, I was just I was just really fascinated that that, he had, that that there's so much imagery packed into this, and it's all relating. And then this whole chapter is relating to this idea of um, nature is just being this uh, this 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 infinite text with with infinite meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and the chapter before they're they're talking. He's talking about the the logos. And I had just been reading um, Eric Davis's book, which I'm blanking on the name of, but he, he talks about some of the early 1970s characters like Terrence McKenna, Philip K. Dick, Robert Anton Wilson. But he, he talks about how there's this idea in the mystical traditions of the logos of having this mystical text that doesn't have any firm and fixed meaning that you kind of induce um, a kind of overload. So it opens up the possibility of seeing you know, this, all of this meaning in the outside world that by chasing down this kind of elusive meaning, 
that you open yourself up to. There's a confusion of the subject and the object, that the inside becomes the outside, and it opens you up to seeing all of this uh, mystical importance in the world around you. I was just, I was just wondering if like, you, you had thoughts about how this discussion of the logos relates to this kind of eruption of, of meaning in nature in the next chapter. That was a long way to go about it. No, Steve, I, I, we're pausing. I'm just taking in what you're expressing. I'm, I'm grateful for everything you just expressed. And, um, and really, for me, the inverted tree as an image was a really important image. It showed up in a dream of mine at one point, and I spent some time researching. I was just trying to find some of the references and the collected work to the inverted tree. And, but I'm taking in everything you're expressing. Nothing long-winded. Appreciating it. Um, but Carol, do you, anything coming up for you just there? Well, I think I think implicit in in what has come to be thought of as union work that the work you do here it, it gives up and gives back to your making to the source of your making, however you want to talk about that, and that that Hillman in some of his lectures called it epistrophe e p i s t r o p h e the giving up or the giving back. And I, I think we talked about this a little earlier. The Chinese idea is, is to thank the ancestors for your life. And it's really this idea that your life is dependent on other life. And that in the honoring of your life in this way, the word they use is burnishing, burnishing your life, it enriches and gives back to source. And, um, and it's very much what, what the Kabbalistic, you know, if you think about going up and down the tree, uh, the Kabbalistic tree of things endlessly reflecting each other at finer and finer shades of, of incarnation and being, then, then um, Jung's image here is really in, in a very small and really simple way is grabbing that. There's so much around. We kind of skipped over the word. I think all three of us, in our discussions over email, Carol, Anna, and myself all kind of just felt like we'd had enough of the contemplation of the word. So we wanted to emphasize the kind of greening of the dusty landscape, you know, but for it also just feels like that shift in general that we've all been exploring for weeks and weeks of the shift from the logos to the arrows, just fundamentally, you know, um, and kind of trying to get into a more embodied space around all this. I don't know if that speaks, Steve, to what you were exploring here. Um, but anyway, a lot coming up in all this. There's always more to dive into. Richard, hi. Hi, thanks uh, once again for some wonderful stuff. I've been doodling through this whole hour, and I'm just struck by something that's maybe uh, was thinking it was a bit off the wall, but uh, it's coming together for me. This is from a neuroscience standpoint, uh, there is in our brain area, a thing called a polar gyrus. And a friend of mine studied some functional MRI of the polar gyrus. And there are two sides to the polar gyrus. And under a functional MRI, one side of the polar gyrus is all filled up in a in an adult person. The other side is rather empty. And when I have been thinking and listening to what we've been talking about today, the 
filled up side of the polar gyrus is all filled up with judgment. And in order to be in this uh, neuroscientist friend of mine uh, would consult with people who were stuck and not being very creative anymore. And he would work with people to rediscover creativity by having people suspend the judgment on one side of their polar gyrus. And in that suspension of judgment, there is a return to creativity. So I guess my doodling is, is appreciating Jung's experience with the anchorite who has found a way of suspending his judgment and is in fact reconnecting and creatively uh, experiencing nature. And uh, I, I guess in many respects, this is uh, my own journey is to get out of that side of me that has lived a long life and has accumulated a whole lot of judgment. And if I go into this river of peace that you're referring to, I can literally become more of a human being. So it's really fascinating. I, I, so thank you. Beautiful. I think I, I just felt Anne's heart burst, I think. <laughs> Where could we find out more about that particular part of the brain? That's very fascinating. But you're right, it's my heart that's bursting, not my brain. <laughs> <laughs> what it is to suspend. Yeah, Anita, uh, hi. I just love this. Um, and, you know, each contribution keeps just sort of exploding it out more and more. But uh, on the, what did you call it, Richard? The gyro, what? Polar gyrus. Polar, polar, polar gyrus. Yeah, thank you. For a long time, I mean, one day it just dawned on me, the word adult comes from adulteration, basically, you know, we, 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 we encourage our children to become adults. But actually, what we're encouraging them to do is to leave their, their spontaneous creativity and full world consciousness behind in order to take on the very kind of mind that, that you've been describing there. And I, I, it explains my utter attraction to little kids, you know. <laughs> if, I'm in a, if I'm in a room with a lot of adults and a couple of kids, that's where I want to be, you know. They're just so alive. They're just so completely alive. They're, they're in the river still. Yeah. They have yeah. Not. Yeah. Thank you, Susan. Hi. Hi. Um, I was thinking about Hillman, and there's a passage in one of his books that you may know exactly where that is, Carol, where he talks about our job is to grow down into ourselves, into our lives, into our families, into our histories, into who we are. It has nothing to do with growing up and that growing up was a big mistake, <laughs> was never meant to be about that. It's all about growing down. I love that image. I've always loved that image. And, and the other piece of that, a couple things I'm reminded about. One is that the tree the roots are growing down and of course the leaves are growing up. I think it's a Sufi idea that in part where we have a two-pointed arrow where we're looking down, look, looking at ourselves and also looking out at the world. 
Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an idea of being sort of present and being conscious in the moment where we're seeing what's going on in the world outside of us. And we're also aware simultaneously of what our own reactions are to that. We're, we're present. That, that to me is what presence is. It's a real feeling of presence when I'm aware of both things simultaneously. It's, uh, it's kind of a heightened state to be aware of the, to look at a tree and see that it has roots at the same time that I'm seeing its leaves. It's the same thing of looking out into the world and also being aware of something on the inside that isn't visible, that isn't the visible world. And then the last thing that dawned on me was just thinking about St. Francis. We were talking about the Anchorite and talking about uh, the desert fathers and mothers and how that, how that arose to come, become Benedict and to become the um, monastic traditions. Certainly St. Francis really understood that all of nature was his mother and his father and his sister and his brother, where he made the famous story of Father sun and sister moon. I mean, it was very clear to Francis that all of nature was his family. Yeah. Thanks, Susan. Yeah. So rich. I mean, there's so much, of course, that native cultures are still just in America, everything now of hearing, you don't want to kind of generalize or romanticize, but, but so much of still what our country is trying to come back to and the whole world is trying to come back to. And right now, the potential of this moment again, to appropriately paganize all of us again and bring us back in relationship to the earth. And, and just again, how profound for me this book is in terms of supporting us to do that because it's a, a Western man who was steeped in Christian religious tradition from a very patriarchal perspective. And the mysticism was absolutely absent and any sort of Gnosticism was absolutely absent. The notion of the feminine being part of the mystical space was completely absent. And here he is slowly greening and returning. I thought we would just end, Carol, with this last paragraph right right at the very end of this chapter. Yeah. So if we want to go there just as a small reading again, the very end of 262. And therefore, what happened to every desirous solitary also happened to him. The devil came to him with smooth tongue and clear reasoning and knew the right word at the right moment. He lured him to his desire I had to appear to him as the devil since I had accepted my darkness. I ate the earth and I drank the sun and I became a greening tree that stands alone and grows. Many thanks to our incredible podcast team. To Anne Carroll for German translation and soulful insights. To our producer, Ayal Alvis, for turning this rough audio into a podcast. To Kelly Swenson for your dedicated work behind the scenes. To Haley Hendricks for the incredible podcast music. And to Ray Davis for our beautiful art. You're all brilliant and talented, and we're very grateful. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast. <laughs>